Well, that said, uh, Joe, we have Drew on the line here. What would you like to ask him? My partners and I, for screening potential deals, we are targeting 80 to 150 units. I've talked to you know a few other syndicators that say they would rather pursue smaller deals to generally have a larger piece of the pie. So for someone like me trying to attack that first deal, what do you recommend? I think number of units is an interesting number, but uh, 100 units in Memphis is very different than 100 units in St. Paul. So I might think about it in terms of dollars rather than units. Um, The second thing I would say is it really is also not dependent upon what you want to do, but what are the capabilities of the partners on the ground and what are they good at doing? Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. This is journal entry number 54 and part of our Ask the Expert series. In this episode, we bring experienced investor Drew Whitson and aspiring investor Joe Belady on the show. Keep listening for some great tips on first deal criteria and how to balance your W-2 job with your real estate profession and your family. And now, the show. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. It's one of our Ask the Expert episodes. Uh, We've got two amazing people on the line with us, a guy with a ton of experience in real estate and finance, Drew Whitson, and a very motivated and energetic aspiring investor, Joe Belady. So a little bit about Drew. He began his real estate career working for a boutique investment banking firm in St. Paul, Minnesota, which specialized in syndication of public and private limited partnership real estate funds, focusing on net leased single tenant properties. Uh, Drew began purchasing single family homes in St. Paul, Minnesota, and later expanded to apartment syndications. Over the past decade, Drew's expanded his portfolio to over 2,200 units by acquiring multifamily properties in Minnesota, Huntsville, Alabama, Little Rock, Arkansas, Atlanta, and the Memphis markets. In addition to being a full-time real estate investor, syndicator, and coach, he's a professor of finance at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and lives with his wife and his four tax deductions in St. Paul, Minnesota. That said, (laughs) Drew, um, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background and history, fill in the blanks between that bio. Let us know who Drew Whitson is and what led you to actively pursue apartment investing. Yeah. So one of my first jobs out of college is working for sponsored limited partnership funds. It was a large group. We did conservative net lease, single tenant, debt-free assets, but it really got me exposure to the world of syndication, right? And this, this was a formalized syndication uh, investment banking group, but it really kind of helped me understand sort of the structure. And I got exposed to a lot of people who had done really well in real estate uh, and sort of kind of opened up the language and the experience for me. So mm-hmm. I had an interest in that and started buying single family homes back in the kind of the housing downturn between 2008 to 2010 yep. and pretty much bought things in my neighborhood. I mean, uh, the uh, Warren Buffett says risk is not knowing what you're doing. And so I only bought things that I knew. And that was my neighborhood. I knew yeah. what was down the street. I knew where the houses were built. I knew what the neighborhood was like. So I ended up picking up a kind of a good sized portfolio of single family homes right in my own neighborhood. And as the housing market started coming back online, I was able to use the additional equity in those properties to acquire 
uh, multifamily assets. And so my business partner and I, we, I remember the first day we bought our fourplex and boy, we thought that was the biggest thing in the world. We were so excited. Yeah. We bought a fourplex, we bought a threeplex. And then just a couple months after that, uh, we partnered with a third guy and the three of us took down a 32 unit. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we realized buying this 32 unit with a commercial loan versus buying a fourplex with like kind of a residential loan uh, was just the incredible, how much easier it was in, in many senses. It was it was really a great way to get into a much larger asset with a single lender. And we really felt like our local commercial bank was our partner in the deal. And we really, it was a much smoother process. So we immediately recognized how much better it was to sort of scale with these larger assets. And we had a lot more efficiency in these properties. Mm-hmm. We had you know one boiler and one roof over 32 units. And we had professional property management, which really simplified the process and allowed us to Talk about think about managing the assets uh, mm-hmm. and looking for new deals. Not actually working, you know, working as as a landlord or having to worry about some of the nuances that you pay your property manager to deal with. So that, yeah. I think that was the light that really went on for us. That said, look, if we want to start continuing to build a nice passive cash flowing business, uh, we need to figure out ways to partner and scale and get into larger properties. Yeah, and I love that about multifamily real estate. You know, I, I've said this many times. You know, in your case, it was a buy one get thirty two sale. A lot of economies there. You know, a lot of people on, on a single family portfolio, you know, one one roof expense is going to blow their budget for many years. And you've got 32 units with, I think you said one roof, right? It was great. Yeah. Yep. It's awesome. So you get to spread load a lot of the expenses. You know, a lot of a lot of economies of scale with with multifamily. You know, how hard was it to get financing in like 2008 to 2010 timeframe on on what you guys were looking at? You know, it, it wasn't as hard as you think. Interest rates are a little bit higher, but one of the really nice things about working with your local commercial bank is that they really were partners with you. The agent that was working with us came out and did the inspection with us. They helped us underwrite the property. And so uh, we really felt like it was not us first, the bank. We felt like the bank was very um, helpful in getting the deal done. They could share with us a lot of their own research and their experience. Uh, and they wanted to make sure that we were able to hit our goals and that their capital was protected and that we had a plan in place to improve the asset and reduce the risk to their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So we really felt like it was, I mean, interest rates were higher and we got you know, maybe similar leverage as we got today, maybe a little less. Okay. Um, but I, th- I think one of the key things is really developing relationships with those local banks, um, especially if you're local and the property's local. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for a less expensive capital than chasing some of the big national lenders or the Fannie Freddie loans. Yeah. Just this week, Brian, I had one of my coaching students close on a deal in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and he got a two and a half percent loan fixed for five years wow. uh, with no extra escrow for principal and interest. In fact, he didn't have any extra deposit and he's he's paying all his own property taxes and insurance. So it really was able to allow him to get a fantastic rate. And he, he, he did the legwork on building relationships with the local bank. So a lot of money out there, you know, people in our business are chasing Fannie and Freddie and bridge products. But I just want to emphasize right now, some of those local commercial banks are looking to deploy a couple million bucks of capital at a time. Yeah. And if you can develop the right relationship with them, there's great opportunities there to be able to build fantastic financing. And his deal is much better because of the, the reduced amount of capital that doesn't have to sit idle as it would with some other traditional agency lenders. Yeah. You know, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. I talked with him a couple of days ago and he was, he was like, like the day after he closed, yeah. he didn't tell me that he got a 2.5% interest rate. That is a screaming deal from a bank. You know, and I'll tell you, we, we've done three agency loans and we're, we're doing our second local bank, commercial bank loan right now. And we do get better terms, you know, and I think that the approval process is a lot simpler. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are several levels of underwriting. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's, it's a good course of, of action for, for a lot of the deals. 
so let me, let me ask you this, Drew. What's, what's your motivation? What's your big burning why for investing in apartments? Yeah, I, you know, early in my career, I actually was let go twice in, in, one, in 12 months. I got laid off twice in one year. And I had sort of this moment that gave me this conviction to say, I, I no longer want to be beholden to any company to fulfill the, the future needs of, of my financial needs. I, I no longer wanted to make sure that any one company sort of had that much control over me. So it, it created this passion in me, this sort of deep sense of independence to say, I need to build something on my own. I need to have something that I can't get fired from. I need to have something that creates some great cash flow, something that doesn't take up a ton of time. And really real estate was where that came to me. That was that was really sort of the original impetus for having multifamily assets was I want to be able to scale a business that I can't get fired from. I realize it's it's only my responsibility to take care of myself and my family. It's not a company's job. Uh, it's not my parents' job. It's not the government's job. I'm only responsible for me. And that sense of freedom and independence, be able to build something that I can control my time. And, and it really has been, um, I've been able to fulfill that, fulfill that desire to have that, have that independence and freedom financially to live my life and be able to be able to make decisions in ways that I, that are most important to me. Yeah. I, I love that attitude. You know, just, just that sense of responsibility for your, for your own trajectory there. I remember, you know, 10, 12 years ago in, in the recession, you know, 2008, 2009 timeframe, my dad and my two older brothers all lost their jobs within a couple of weeks. And to be honest with you, I was, I was wanting to get out of the Marine Corps at the time. And part of the reason I stayed in was for that security. You know, the government jobs do give you a little bit more security than civilian jobs. But, you know, in the last 10 years, I've come full circle now to where I'm thinking a lot more like Drew Whitson, where I don't want to rely on the government to make sure my family's fed and, you know, have shelter over their head. So well, good good for you. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you did that, that long ago because, you know, you've definitely helped us, me, Eric and Todd and Brian at Four Oaks Capital, you know, several times, you know, many, many different times. So. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some specific deals. Can you give us a brief history of either one of the deals you've done or maybe you know, a range of deals that you've done? Yeah. I, so most of my properties kind of sit in the mid-Atlantic area. I started out doing a lot of joint venture deals here in the Twin Cities, um, but have been expanding my portfolio really in the Mid-South. So probably more than half of my portfolio is in the Memphis market. And I have another deal under contract there right now. We're hoping to get closed in the next six weeks. Also, Little Rock, Huntsville, um, and I got a few other things under contract there as well. So I've really been able to find markets that I think have really great. They're favorable from a housing perspective, like there was a good tenant base. There's favorable municipalities that encourage the kind of redevelopment that I want to provide into these cities. Um, and I've great some great partners as well that I feel like are able to really execute my business plans and really hold the same values that I do. So I think one really neat story that I have is in the in the Memphis market. There was a property that was held by a, a private bank out in New York. They had bought it off of sort of bought pennies on the dollar on a non-performing loan. Mm-hmm. Um, their goal was to basically flip this thing as fast as possible. So they intended to sell this, basically get it up to the point where it's just financeable. And because of that, because the deal had to move really quickly, when this came to market, we were able to, because of the relationships I had with our brokers and with our property manager, they, they said, hey, we need to find a group that can close this thing absolutely quickly, will not retrade us, can do it on time. They said, we know the guy for this. And my business partner, Andrew Niffin and I were in Memphis. We took a look at the property and they said, look, we're going to leave a ton of meat on the bone for you guys. We're going to leave, we're going to sell this to you well below market, but this is the price. These are the terms. This is the day we're closing. 
And if you agree to that, we'll sell you this thing with on a significantly below market. So there's no marketing packets. There was no beautiful pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, there was some hand, there's some hand notes that we had to fill out in the due diligence, but it really gave us an opportunity, I think, to provide and, and solidify our reputation as a group that can close. Um, and this was a 224 unit in the Memphis market. And so we've really, we're fortunate that we were able to get this thing closed. We closed it exactly on time. And because we were the consummate buyer from the broker's side, um, we've been able to have a great reputation with them and have been able to access more deals when they come to us and say, hey, we got a property that's a little bit of a mess. We don't want to market it. Our, our seller just wants to find a reliable local buyer that can take down these kinds of assets. And mm-hmm. we've been able to benefit from that relationship ever since then. Nice, nice. So when, when the broker came to you with that deal, what type of relationship did you have with him prior to that? Um, it was it was limited. Our reputation was kind of through our property manager as well. Um, okay. There's one main property manager in the Memphis market that had, we had worked with very carefully and that we had done a couple of smaller deals with. And so um, because we had spent a lot of time, I think, in person in the Memphis market, we were there regularly meeting with them, regularly having opportunities to make sure we understood their market. It was that it was that relationship. And it was the fact that we had spent a lot of time. We weren't just people on the phone calling up, kicking tires and saying, Hey, I'm from out of state. I heard Memphis is a good market, you know, send me a deal, right? So we spent yeah. time to get to know there. And I think before I even bought my first deal, I think I had been in Memphis for a year and a half visiting and getting to know the area. So I could speak very confidently and clearly about uh, the, the kind of partners we had locally, the kind of neighborhoods we were interested, the type of assets that we wanted to buy, as well as the kind of capital projects that we thought would add value. So while I was out of state, we presented ourselves as a local option based upon those relationships. Yeah, I think that's key. I mean, what, something I didn't realize, well, I, everybody told me, but I, I think it took a while for that light to go on is it's, it's a relationship business, you know, it's a relationship and a reputational business. And this is just a clear example of how your reputation and your relationships got you first look at this deal and then later on first look at several other deals. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's a key, key fact and, and absolutely amazing. You guys were able to to be in the right place at the right time and scoop that up. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So how, how about this, Drew? What's, what's next for you? Well, um, one of the things that I've been very fortunate because of my, the success of my real estate business, I've been able to do a lot of things, other things in my life that I think have are both valuable, uh, meaningful to me and really interesting. And so right now I'm a professor of finance at Bethel University, my alma mater. I'm on my third year of a tenure track uh, teaching undergrads, the kind of classes that I took 20 years ago. Because I had the opportunity to be um, invested in and mentored and taught by wonderful professors at Bethel that helped me be who I am today, that's one of the things I wanted to choose to do with my time and my life was to go back to that university and hopefully do the same for those students. Um, And one of the things I always tell people is um, when you're financially free, you have the opportunity to do the things that most are, are most valuable to you. I, I think if your goal is to be financially free and then go to Mexico, go to Mexico and sit on a hammock, I think you're going to get sick of that after a month. And mm-hmm. everyone I talk to that says, after you're done with that, I want to, I want to engage in the world in ways that are meaningful to me. And I think that's the opportunity that I've, that I've had to do that. Um, so I've been really grateful to you know be part of that university and, and be able to play a role, hopefully inspiring students that maybe in 20 years from now, they're going to come back and take my spot and uh, teach students corporate finance and invest in them the way I was invested in. Yeah. You know, that, that's something that I can relate to. I, as you know, I was in uh, the Minnesota area for a while. I actually wanted to be a college professional myself. So glad you enjoy it. It's something that I, I absolutely enjoy. I enjoy teaching. I always enjoyed uh, that type of stuff. So 
All right, let's introduce Joe right now. Joe was born and raised outside of Chicago. He graduated from the University of Illinois, worked as a project engineer in construction for a while, and then he served active duty infantry officer in the Marine Corps from 2011 to 2017. A little while later, he graduated with an MBA in 2019 and is now working in Atlanta. He's purchased two duplexes a block away from each other, house hacking one of them, and the other one that he's turned into an Airbnb. And now he's currently working with a local team to get a, for his first commercial deal in the Atlanta, Georgia market. So that said, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. As you know, Brian, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I listen to every episode. It's, it's just great. I, I think I fit your target market perfectly. Yeah, you know, aspiring investor and, you know, we, we got a lot in common, to be honest with you. I mean, just that uh, Marine Corps experience, you know, it's just something that uh, usually when I see that on somebody's LinkedIn profile or anything like that, it's just like, I want to talk to that guy. So, but awesome. yeah. So yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having me. And, and Drew, thank you for your time as well. I've listened to a few other podcasts that you were on. You have an impressive story. Over 2,000 units. You know, I'll be there someday, but it's, yeah. it's awesome to see that. Uh, yeah. So a little bit more about me. Like you said, I, I grew up in construction. My dad was an electrician. So I naturally got a degree in construction management. Mm -hmm. I worked that for, uh, for two years uh, for a general contractor. And I really just wasn't satisfied um, with where I was currently at or where I was going. So I decided to switch course a little bit and go into the Marine Corps in 2011. At the time, the Marine Corps was doing some awesome marketing in Chicago. It, it, I ate it up and it, it worked for sure. So I served six years as an infantry officer. It was an awesome experience. But as soon as I hit 30, 30 years old, I decided to switch course again and focus on building a family. Um, mm -hmm. So I got out. I went back to school, earned my MBA uh, with a focus on real estate. And when I graduated, I thought, you know, I was going off to the races. I got married. I got a W-2 with benefits. And I thought I'd be able to start crushing real estate as kind of a side hustle. Mm -hmm. um, and then hopefully, you know, replace the W-2 with real estate at some point. We moved to Atlanta. Like you said, we purchased two duplexes, currently living in one but it's hard to scale. I learned extremely quick how hard it is to scale with these small multifamily properties. So again, you know, I, I found myself stuck a little bit unsatisfied with uh, my current situation. So I started networking, started attending webinars. I got connected with a mastermind just for military veterans. And it really exposed me to all the opportunities there are in commercial real estate. Uh, specifically value-add multifamily properties. Yep. Uh, so it was, a, it was a huge game changer for me. I used the education and network with that group to kind of develop my own small team here in Atlanta. And I found that I kind of like the investor relations asset management role and some of the, the numbers crunching. Luckily, some of my other partners, they really enjoy that. So yeah, so yeah we've got a good thing going here. We're just getting the ball rolling. We're putting together a business plan, working on our sample deal package, and uh, we're just hungry. So yeah. you know, hopefully here in the next few weeks, we'll start submitting LOIs. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're doing all the right things. You know, you're putting yourself around other people who can who you can partner with to, to spread load. And uh, you're focusing on your strengths, too, which is something that I think is important. If you're not the numbers guy, find somebody who is a numbers guy. 
And so education is also key. And, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with the program you're in, and I think they've got a solid education program too. So yeah, good on you. So now you, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but can you just one more time go over your big burning why, you know, the reason you're doing this? Yeah. So, and I think a lot of, you know, the more people I, I talk to in commercial real estate, they all kind of uh, had the same idea, but I really just want to control my time. Time is the, the one thing that we can't get more of. And I want to be able to spend more time with my family, spend more time traveling. And I, I really want to find something that I'm passionate about doing. And I think I found that with commercial real estate. I just you know love surrounding myself with people that are also passionate. And then hopefully, you know, when I get the experience, get some more learning, I can give back to that community and help people that are trying to find their passion. So that's that's really what keeps me going every day. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, buying buying your time back is has been key for me too. You know, so and and you realize this having having served in the Marine Corps. You know, I'm sure you've done a deployment or two. When when you do that, you lose a large chunk of time with family, with friends, with everyone else. And you know, same for me. This is this has been something for me to be able to get my time back. So. Well, that said, uh, Joe, we have Drew on the line here. What would you like to ask him? Yeah, I do have a few questions for you, Drew. I, you, you have a lot of experience, so I want to pick your brain a little bit. So originally, my partners and I, our criteria for screening potential deals, we were targeting 80 to 150 units. And the reason for that was we heard from so many other syndicators how important it is to have a full-time property manager I've talked to you know a few other syndicators that say they would rather pursue smaller deals to be able to retain a little bit more ownership, reduce the amount of investors, and generally have a larger piece of the pie. I, I know early on you did a 32 unit and you learned a ton from it. So for someone like me trying to attack that first deal, what do you recommend? Great question. I, I think I think you're approaching it from maybe the wrong angle, right? And here's how I would rephrase that. I think there's two ways. I think number of units is an interesting number, but uh, 100 units in Memphis is very different than 100 units in St. Paul, right? Both from a price point standpoint, from a management standpoint, I think you probably want to think about things in terms of a dollar perspective, right? What is the dollar perspective that we want to get you to? Is it $3 million? Because $3 million informs the type of capital raise that you're going to need. It informs liquidity and balance sheet requirements. So whether $3 million gets you 30 A-class units or whether it gets you 100 C-class units makes a big difference, right? So I might think about it in terms of, in terms of dollars rather than units. Um, the second thing I would say is it really is also not dependent upon what you want to do, but what are the capabilities of the partners on the ground and what are they good at doing, right? So there are certain property managers that I work with that they simply do not manage properties under 100. They have designed their infrastructure, their management, their resources to service 100 unit plus properties. Now, there's also there's also property managers that will only do below 100 as well. And those below 100 ones often have a higher level of technology integration because you can't have on-site property management. They're using a ton of online scheduling things. They're using online payments, right? They're, they're using a little different kinds of services. So I, I think you probably should back into this, this decision from let's start with the, you know, the, the 10 best property managers. I want to understand which of those have the kind of assets in the price range or the size that I'm really interested in and say, let, let's build a business together, property manager. I really like the way you operate. I like the technology you use. I like the markets, the sub-markets you're in. 
property manager, you tell me where you would like to build your business. You know, what, what do they already own that they would love to own the property across the street from them, right? That, that is working in a tight conjunction with property managers. And I know people talk about building their, building their partners, right? You got your accountant and your attorneys and all this. The property manager is like 90% of execution, right? And so I would start with to say, what is my property manager good at? What are they excited about? What does their existing portfolio look like? And I think really leverage them to be able to the group that would say, hey, let's tackle this 40 unit here because we already own three properties across the street, right? And now you can leverage, you can get some of those same 100 unit plus benefits on a 40 unit or let's tackle this 100 unit in this area because we already know how to kind of how to execute some of this. So I think I would start with the property manager a little bit more and sort of see what their recommendations would be and really think of them as an absolute just partner on this in your acquisition strategy. Awesome. Awesome. That's some some of the things you've said, I definitely have not heard anyone say before. So I I appreciate that very much. I agree. Good good yeah. good advice on that one. So you know, we're, we're, my team right now, we're really diving in. We're all involved in the underwriting. We all want to be very comfortable with the underwriting process and our SDA that we're using. How has your underwriting changed due to COVID-19? Are you providing returns in year one? Do you use higher vacancy rates? Do you have larger reserves? Are you planning on increasing rents in the near term? Yeah, great question. I I would go about it from two perspectives. One is there is the institutional side or the market side, which is driving my underwriting requirement changes, which is, for example, I'm getting less leverage from lenders, right? I'm less likely to get 80% leverage and I'm more likely to get 75% leverage. So my underwriting is having to change because of that. Um, There's also additional requirements for uh, higher levels of escrows associated with some of the new financing as well. So that's sort of forcing the additional down payment or the additional capital needed to close on deals. However, at the same time, we're getting some pretty amazing interest rates. We're getting a, we're getting a really low interest rate environment, you know, in the mid to high twos in some sense. Another deal that I was just part of, we closed in Georgia about, uh, about three weeks ago. We got a five years interest only rate at 2.76. Wow. I mean, just, wow. just phenomenal, right? And interest only, wow. and interest only. Yeah. So um, just free money is what that is. Wow. What's that? I said, that's like free money. I mean, free money, right? Yeah. So, so there are some of those pieces that start to make things a little bit different. From the top line, uh, right now I'm in the process. I have a property under contract. I'm raising capital for. And in our five-year projections that we showed to our investors, we have zero rent growth. Our year one gross potential rent income is exactly the same as year five. Right? We're not assuming any rent growth for five years. Um, and we do that for a couple of reasons. One is that we just want to make sure that if we have the opportunity to expand rents and rent expansion is generally out of our hands, we can't control that. It has to do with inflation. It has to do with demand. It has to do with a whole bunch of other factors that we simply don't have control over. So we want to keep that perfectly flat across the board. And so that's some of the things that we have done in order to try to make sure that we are dialed down in this um, little bit unknown market. And in the deal where you're not increasing rents for five years, is that a value add deal? So are you are you increasing the value of the units but not increasing the rents? Well, the the rent target is the repositioned rents. So we think we can bring rents from X to Y and then we hold that at Y for the entire duration of the 5 years. I understand. So you're using current comps at the the level you're going to renovate it to as Correct. your your rent and so so no rent growth on your current comps. Five no years. Okay. Correct. Yep. Understand. 
Got it. Yeah. It just amazes me that you're a full-time syndicator. You're also a full-time finance professor. You're a senior mentor with Michael Blanc's team and a father of four. I have to, you know, I know it's a little bit more personal, but how do you balance your professional and personal life? And when, when was a good time that those kind of came to a friction point? Yeah. Well, I, when you say it out loud like that, it sounds pretty impressive, but I assure you it's not, right? Assure you it's not. Here's, here's the thing. If a full-time syndicator, if you have a full-time syndicator, you are an investor of real estate. You do not have a job in real estate. If you find yourself, I don't want another job, right? I, I have a job that I get to go to and I, that I love. I don't want another job. If I have to spend all day working on my syndication business, it means either one, I, ha- I don't trust the partners that I have in place to give the information and take care of the things that I want to, or I've hired the wrong partners, right? There's, there's this whole sense that if I'm doing things right, if I'm, a, if I'm an investor, a syndicator, I don't have to spend all day doing that. I should have things in place. I should have processes to manage the business, but I don't want to work in the business. I don't want to have anything to do with the day-to-day stuff. I want to get my monthly reports. I want to have my calls to my property manager, make the decisions that we need in terms of acquisition and disposition. Um, but that's, that's not a full-time job. And if you're doing it full-time, you know, after a couple of years, you're, you're probably not doing it right, right? You need more partners um, because you've just, you've just traded one job for another. Um, so I think that's on the syndication side. I think there's a model that says um, there's a lot of way to offload and that's creating good processes as well, right? It's a great, how do you create the right process um, and the right people in order to have the kind of free time you want? Um, academic, teaching in academics is, it's a charmed life. <laughs> a full-time Tenure track professor of finance teaches three classes a semester and I have my summers off. So it is, um, there is a lot of leverage for me to provide academic and scholarly pursuits and development of my professional capabilities. And so in that sense, doing the multifamily syndication complements my academic Mm -hmm. discipline in the same way that running tens of million dollars of private equity deals is a great complimentary thing that I can bring into my classroom. Uh, in fact, every semester, I usually work one of my students, my whole class through one of my one of the deals that I'm working on. Like, hey, here's how we found the deal. Here's how we finance the deal. Here's how we do the valuation of the deal. So I actually bring my students along. And so they kind of get a little bit of exposure to something they probably typically would not have seen is someone actually executing a private equity deal in real time in their classroom. So it's, I would say it's complimentary. Um, and on the fourth thing, I have a wonderful wife and she does, she's great with the kids. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's, I'm not nearly as busy as that, as that sounds. Thank you though. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I guess right now where I'm currently at, it seems like a full-time job. I mean, most of my time is spent learning, right? I'm still trying to absorb mm-hmm. everything, but I've just been telling myself that if I like what I'm doing, it's not work, but it's still taking a lot of time. <laughs> so it's nice to see the light at the end of the tunnel, see someone that's already there. Yeah, And, and here's my advice to you on that, Joe, is once you figure out what your niche is, right? Once you figure out what the sliver of the sliver of the sliver is that you do in this real estate world, it focuses all of your time and your attention and your learning into that specific niche. It clarifies exactly how you talk with your investors, how you work with your brokers, the kind of lending partners that you have in place and the property managers that you use, right? The worst thing you can do is just go on to bigger pockets and listen to every podcast because every single week is a whole new shiny object that someone could chase, right? And so once you figure out, hey, these are the kind of assets that I like to do this way with these kinds of investors of this size, with this property manager, to execute this kind of plan, to get these kinds of returns, 
your world focuses in a much better way that you can begin to get really good at your niche. Um, and so I'm often asked, hey, why don't you chase this deal or that kind of a deal or this kind of a market? And I say, those are all probably great things to do. But what I have done is created a very narrow, specific niche that I built a reputation in the industry. And most importantly, with my investors, I don't bring my investors crazy different deals around the country. I say, here's what I'm good at. I stay in my lane. And so I encourage you to, as you learn to do things and as your group figures out exactly what they're good at, you will also begin to narrow in on that, how you pitch and talk to your investors. And it's a really powerful tool to talk with a broker and say, look, I'm really, I want this thing. I want to give you 10 parameters. And while it might sound to you like you are, uh, you're, you are asking for something very specific that might be limiting, I assure you when they hear someone that knows exactly what they want and why they want it and how they've done it before, you are not casting a smaller net. You're in fact providing a lot of articulation that you know exactly what you want and why you want it. And you're communicating that you are an outstanding, credible buyer who's likely to close and get that commission check in their pocket. And that's a, that is an incredibly powerful tool to communicate. So don't cast wide nets, figure out how, what you want to do, and then figure it stick and figure out how you can streamline that specific message across your business. And you will find that will meaningfully limit the the breadth of other things that can chase both your time and attention. Yeah. My, my mentor gave me the same advice, you know, a year, year and a half ago, I was, I was all over the place. I was looking at 30 units. I was looking at 200 units. I was looking in Memphis. I was looking everywhere, you know, and it, it seems counterintuitive, but it's accurate. You know, once, once I focused on a certain area and on a certain deal size, I had a very strict criteria. All of a sudden the deal started flowing in. So it was, it was amazing. You know, something that I, I realized at the time, you know, I thought, hey, cast a wide net so I can pull in as many fish as possible. But no, you want that that very narrow focus, become an expert at one thing and, you know, make build your reputation on that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we haven't actually started contacting all the brokers and all the property managers in our area because we're still kind of putting things together and getting the learning together. But that's, it's better to know to have the narrow narrow focus a little bit and get that criteria really narrowed down. That's helpful. I, I definitely appreciate it. Um, I, I do have a few other questions. So you left your W-2 in 2018. What were kind of your criteria or your requirements for leaving your W-2? Did you have an income amount? Was there a certain amount of units under management? And then once you did leave, how did that feel? I mean, was it exciting? Was it scary? Yeah. I, I, I've never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I'm not someone that likes risk. I'm not someone that really wants to take on big projects or do things. So I never really saw myself as someone who has that entrepreneurial spirit. And so for me, I probably left my job much later than I should have. Right. I, I think I stayed on much longer than I needed to. And so for me, it was kind of a relief. I, I knew that I had had built up both the reputation and the opportunities to continue to expand my business model but I probably should have left a little bit sooner. Right. I, and I, and I think that's from a perspective. I, I remember there was, there was one time I was, my, my boss was trying to get a house and he was trying to buy this thing out of foreclosure. And he was like, oh, I'm just, you know, I can't, I can't get enough cash together. And so I gave my boss like $150,000 hard money loan. I'm like, yeah, sure. I, I got it for you. We'll just sign this. Right. And so there was this moment of like, but I, I clearly am able to have a, a financial stability that greatly exceeds some of the senior executives <laughs> at the company I worked at. And so it was, it was this kind of this revelation. He's like, man, what am I doing here? Like, what, 
why am I here every day sort of, you know, busting my hump to drive some synergy? And so it was just one of those moments where I was like, I think I need to get out of this. And so I think for me, it was, this, my, we have four kids and my wife uh, stays at home with them. And so I think for us, it was kind of a, a balance sheet perspective. Um, I, I think one of the things that people often focus on in their life is they care about their income statement. How much job, how much, how much money do they make? Like how many dollars are coming in? And, but I really look through my lens on a balance sheet perspective to say, what is my net worth and how do I grow my net worth and how do I manage my net worth? And so um, I, I think it was more of a balance sheet perspective for me than it was, what is my free cash flow, you know, each, each month last quarter or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, Hey Joe, we got time for one more question. So you know, if, if you got that one burning question still left, now's the time. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So I, I mean, this, this kind of ties into your why, but I know, you know, you're a professor now, you have so many different things going on and you're clearly providing so much value back to the community and giving back. What is like your long-term vision? Like when you look back on your life, when you're in your seventies, eighties, like how do you want to be remembered? You know what I think of is, how do I describe my dad to people? And, you know, when you think about yourself, how do you want like your son or your daughter to describe you to other people? Right. Like, so I guess, how do you, you know, what do you want your impact to be? Yeah. Uh, Woody Allen has this great quote that I have found to be incredibly true. And the quote is, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you, if you think you've got a five-year plan, you don't. And so, mm-hmm. I think the opportunity, the thing that I, I encourage my coaching students that I, you know, talk with people about is I'm just looking for what the next best opportunity is today. And so I, I, I used to be a guy that loved three-year plans, five-year plans. Not one has ever worked out ever, right? Um, and I, I, get, I get the discipline to have, have a vision, right? How do you, what do you do today to impact what you want to do five years from now? Um, and I think the simple answer is just, I try to find what's the next opportunity to keep my eyes open. So I don't really have a five-year plan. Um, I don't know where I'll be in five years because I had no idea five years ago I'd be here today. This this is not the result of a great level of architecture and execution from years ago, right? It was it's it's an evolution of opportunities, and I try to take every little opportunity that I can, no matter what the benefit was to me. And that's sort of where I've ended up. To get the second part of your question, how do I want to be remembered? I I think I don't aspire to be remembered in the sense of I, I don't want buildings named after me. I don't want a park named after me. I. I don't, I, I do not seek the kind of immortality that you would find in those uh, traditional kind of people who've impacted having legacy, you know, sort of these, uh, uh, these monuments of legacy that exist in, in the community space. I, that's not of interest to me. What I want to be able to do is, is send a legacy that says, if I've been able to positively impact the lives of my family members, my students, um, my tenants, right? To the extent that I can positively impact their life in a different direction. And then they in turn positively impact other people. And so it goes, right? And so my legacy is not in, in, in what remains in my name after I am gone. It, it exists. Uh, it echoes through the halls of, of, of time as that continues to shuttle on through down, down the line. Uh, because I, I know that I have been positively impacted by, by a lot of people, but I can't tell you who impacted, you know, two or three people ago that led them to help me. And so I, I think that's my vision is to say, look, I want to just continue to be called towards a vision and a mission. And to the extent that that impacts the world and continues on, um, that is, that's all I'm, all I'm seeking. Good enough. Thank you. All right. Hey, I uh, got one, one question for each of you. Drew, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I, uh, I'm not a platform guy. I, I like the private part of private equity. I don't have a website. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, 
you know, I don't do a pod cool podcast like you guys do. I'm just, a, I'm just a private guy. So, um, but you're drew.witson at gmail.com is mm-hmm. that's it. Or just look me up on LinkedIn and connect that way. Um, I think that's about all I got. All right. Hey, Joe, same question for you. Uh, yeah. So I'm always on LinkedIn. I love connecting uh, with passionate people in real estate. So please feel free to reach out. I also just published my website yesterday. My business name is Operational Capital. And the website is opcapllc.com. Cool. All right. Now, Drew, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you. And I'll tell you, you, you have positively impacted us, you know, at, at Four Oaks Capital. And, you know, everything we do is going to echo your name. So, you know, you, you've done that with us and, you know, we'll, we'll continue to pay it forward. Joe, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know you today a little bit more. And, you know, I think you've got the drive. You've got everything you need to do amazing things in this business. I think you're doing everything right right now. And I look forward to hearing great things from you. So thanks to both of you for being on the show. Uh, you brought a ton of value and I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thank Brian. you, Drew. Yeah, great to meet you. Thanks, Joe. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.